0: Good morning. It's one minute past nine. Coming up to two minutes past nine, you're tuned to 102.7 3RRR. Time for this week's edition of Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. My name is Bron Burton and...
1: My name is Dr Beach.
0: <laughs> great to see you, Dr Beach. So
1: lovely to see your cheery face, Good Bron Good to be Burton. back. And you, Kent. <laughs> it is great to be back in the studio. After all this time, I was just saying to Tim... And by the way, Tim, I wasn't skulking around the studio before... <laughs> I haven't seen him in about a year. Yeah. It's also beautiful. I'm just filled with this sense of warmth in my heart. It's nice, isn't and it? Gratitude. Yeah. Important yeah.
0: to be grateful. Yeah. I'm grateful for Tim. Thank you, Tim. <laughs> Another three wonderful hours of Vinyl Bits. Thank you, Andrew. Very much for Soulful Bits as well. Elizabeth Cotton, that was great this morning. Yeah. Learned a, sure lot. Was. yeah. learned a lot.
1: Left handed banjo. <sighs>
0: yeah. Incredible. So yes, you can catch Tim next weekend and Andrew as well. On today's program, once again, we've got something for everyone, Dr Beach.
1: We sure have. We're
0: kicking off with uh, catching up with Neil Blake, our bay keeper. Now, Neil's also um, very active in the freshwater space. Um, He calls the creeks and rivers the skinny bits of the bay, which I kind (laughs) of like like that connection. So Neil's going to be joining us and joining forces with Werribee river keeper, John Forrester, and they're going to be talking about platypus, which is something uh, <laughs> Kent is very much looking forward to hearing all about. So, and uh, see if we can find a connection between platypus and the sea, that's going to be interesting. Um, we'll also be talking to Neil about some recent work he's done with the Darabin Creek Sweepers, And there's a clean-up event happening today that John's going to tell us about as well. We are also going to be crossing to speak with Jackie Younger and uh, Mandy Robinson. They've um, been very involved in the Save Our Spider Crabs campaign. If you listen to this program... Uh, regularly you'll know this was quite a big feature of our of our lineup last year and it's shaping up to be the same this year so uh, i'm sure everyone listening will probably know that there's an annual migration of spider crabs that suddenly appear along the mornington peninsula that's coming up pretty soon so we're going to talk to jackie and mandy about the campaign and what's been happening behind the scenes over summer and a bunch of other things as well and then dr beach
1: yeah i'm going to wrap up the show with a a nice bit. I mean, so often I you know, open the journals and it's bad news about the marine environment. Indeed, a couple of weeks ago I talked about the marine soundscape and how we humans have chucked a lot of noise in there and it's disturbing many, many animals, not only the, you know, the large, obvious ones like whales and you know, all sorts of things. But now there's a really lovely story in the journal Science about fin whales, fin whales, are really big whales. They're the second largest whales, go up to around 25 metres. They vocalise very, very well. In fact, they can send their songs 100 kilometres over ocean basins. Some very clever people in Oregon and the United States and also in Czechoslovakia have figured out that they can capture fin whale songs through seismic recorders which are there on the sea floor to record stuff, try and predict earthquakes. Anyway... I'll talk about this more later on. I'm too much of a front load here. (laughs) Um, They can use those songs, they can capture the recordings to actually then map the seafloor. So Ah. they can use Ah. the sounds of the fin whales themselves and lots of high fancy computer stuff to map the seafloor and even beneath the seafloor. So this has the potential to replace noisy air guns in the sea. Incredible. I'll talk more about that later on.
0: That's extremely cool. I've got a little bit of news but before we do that let's have your first I was going to say your first weather forecast but you've been doing them you just haven't been doing them here in studio
1: No that's right I've been doing them from Skype all over the state or you know <laughs> in lockdown in my um, you know little flat um, but here we are, 28 degrees, going to be a beautiful day for the last of summer. Chance a bit of fog this morning, in fact there was as I was driving down from Malmsbury this morning on the Calder. Lots of lovely fog, it was quite lovely watching the sunrise. It's going to be a mostly sunny day, light winds becoming south-southeast 15 to 20 kilometres in the late afternoon, then tending south-southwest in the evening. Tomorrow is going to be partly cloudy, 21, maybe a sprinkle um, each day during the week, there might be a little bit of a sprinkle, but it's, yeah, it's cooling down after today's 28. It's going to be 21 tomorrow, then 18, 18, 19, and then back up to perhaps 25 later on in the week. If you're heading out on the water, you'll be wanting to know what's happening with the tides. Uh, Point Lonsdale, which of course represents the heads of our fair Port Phillip, it was low tide at 7.18 this morning, and it's going to be a high tide of 1.32 metres at 1.32pm.
0: Excellent. Thanks, Dr Beach.
1: That's a complete pleasure.
0: Do you want to hear a weather forecast from Antarctica? Cool. This is from uh, Cliff Davis, who's reached out to us this morning. Hey, Cliff. (laughs) Cliff's down there at Casey.
1: Cliff Davis, good name for being in Antarctica. Davis. Yeah. Yeah. Or if there's a Davis Cliff just near Davis Station.
0: There could be. Stranger things have happened. Thanks, Cliff. We're calling you Triple R's most remote subscriber. I don't know whether that's true or not. Let's call him that until somebody challenges that one, I reckon. So, uh, I'm sorry, I'm just reading from Cliff's text. Casey Station Weather. And uh, we – where are we? I'm finding it hard to read this. I'll try and load a better one. Here we go. All right. Air temperature is currently minus 6.1 degrees with wind chill. That's minus 20.7 degrees. Get zooks. Minus 20. With humidity of 95% and winds of 70 knots.
1: Oh, 70 knots now. one are that wind chills like? That?
0: That's amazing. Yikes. Yeah. And uh, he says, uh, "Had greetings. Had our first blizzard of the season last week. Today it's a lot better. OK during the week. What wonder go. if they have any. It's big... a lot. It's 70 knots and it's a lot better. <laughs> maybe that was from last week.
1: Wonder if they have any big celebration for the last day of summer or perhaps you know, looking, maybe not too forward to the darkness of winter.
0: Yeah. Oh, this was Thursday. I've just realised. Right. Yeah. Oof. Amazing. Don't know. We'll find out. I'm pretty keen to get keen on um, get Cliff on the show. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, quick news item, and then let's go to a track. Um, this one came through during the week. Thank you, Elizabeth, for sending it through. Um, bit of dire news: 19 Australian ecosystems collapsing, including the Great Barrier Reef. So this has come around from uh, University of Queensland, eminent scientists are sounding a warning key ecosystems in every state and even in Antarctica are collapsing are calling for new action to avert catastrophic biodiversity losses. The 19 ecosystems impacted include tropical savannas, rainforests, coral reefs, tall wet forests in southern Australia and even remote polar environments. Uh, While the environmental degradation observed is being driven by multiple drivers, in almost all cases, climate change is exacerbating and accelerating all the other threats. So this report's been authored by 38 scientists from universities and government agencies and published in Global Change Biology. That was during the week. And one of the authors is uh, our own, we'll call him ours, he's partly, you know, he's triple ours, but Einstein and Gogo presenter, regular presenter Professor Ewan Ritchie from Deakin University. And Uh, I have it on good authority from Dr Shane that they will be covering this matter in detail in the coming weeks. Without further ado it's uh, fabulous to welcome um, to Triple R our very own Neil keeper, very own bay keeper Neil Blake. Good morning Neil.
2: I'm doing my best to be present. Ron.
0: Excellent. i <laughs> to be here. I'm very pleased to hear it. And welcoming <laughs> to Radio Maranara, I think for the first time, I'll be apologetic if I'm incorrect, um, John Forrester, who is our Werribee Riverkeeper. Good morning, John. Good
3: morning, Bron. How are you? Good morning, all. Yeah, I'm well, and it is my first time. Oh, thanks.
0: excellent! Oh, it's lovely to have you with us. Let's Thank you. let's start with your role as Werribee Riverkeeper, because I think we're all very familiar with Neil and what he does. What do you do as uh, as Werribee Riverkeeper?
3: Oh, my job is to speak up for the waterways of the West, in particular the Werribee River, and uh, we engage in advocacy. Uh, on-ground action, representation, participation, collaboration, all those good words that mean that um, we need to bring the spirit of the river back into the life of the people and give it back its energy and uh, give the people their right to access good, clean water.
0: Very good. And do you and Neil do lots of work together?
3: Oh, yes. We've been working on a number of projects over a long time and um, have become quite good friends and good colleagues. That's great.
0: Um, Neil? Yeah. Yeah, sorry, Neil.
2: I was just going to say, and we also keep an eye out for shopping trolleys, too, in, in the waterways. Ah.
0: That's a, a
3: common sight?
2: Uh, yeah, well, I think i aware of creek, and I think you've got a few out yeah. there, too, John.
3: Yeah, yeah. Neil and I have been talking lately about uh, some sort of innovative approach to the problem of, uh, of trolleys in rivers. And uh, while we know supermarkets and other large organisations have them, it's often not their fault uh, that they end up in the creeks. It's the um, discriminant user who drops them and so forth. And we have some lovely steep banks on the Werribee River where they roll down the hill nicely and up up in, in the water. And they're very difficult to trace. And uh, the phone numbers you ring to get the trolleys out of the water don't... Uh, well, they do work most of the time, but they, of course, can't get their people down into water and so forth due to health and safety regulations. So other things like municipalities and yeah. water and so on can't do it either. So... The community carries a big load with these trolleys.
1: John, it's Dr Beach here. I was, I was just thinking it's going to be it's a bit, bit of an effort to get a trolley out of the water if you've got to go down into the water and you know, down the slope and all of that.
3: Yep, yep, it is, Doctor. It's, uh, it's also it's a heavy load. You know, they're 40 or 50 k. I, I don't know. I haven't really measured them much on my bathroom scales, but they are very heavy and they really wrench your arms and legs about. And In fact, I will pull you back in if they get up and put it off the bottom and want to go back down.
0: Yeah, I imagine they probably do. Um, Neil, I mentioned in our uh, on our Facebook sort of announcement about this week's show that you you call creeks and rivers the skinny bits of the bay. Um, I think it's kind of fairly obvious what that means, but would you like to elaborate on that?
2: Well, it is a little bit cheeky, I suppose, because that, obviously the, the rivers and the creeks uh, deserve uh, their own sort of uh, credibility in their own, own right. But... Um, Yeah, I just think that they they certainly though, that the uh, waterways are connected to each other. It's almost like a digestive system, if you think about it, where the, uh, you know, uh, water sort of starts at the top of the creeks and rivers and comes down through out into the bay and carrying nutrients and contaminants along the way. Uh, But uh, on that topic of the digestive system, I'm wondering about, you know, we talk about river mouths. but really, when you think about it, uh, they perhaps should be called river anuses because uh, they're actually flowing down out into into, into the into the way bay. So um, not sure how you feel about that, John.
3: Oh uh, yeah, well it's a bit like uh, sea urchins. They're a bit like that, aren't they, Neil? They have their uh, backside <laughs> down there somewhere, and it all comes out the bottom like it comes out everywhere. But. Um They are the skinny bits of the bay and we do give Neil his work. So it is right. We do feel connected and that's why we actually do work together on a lot of things like microplastics and more.
0: I think you're, uh, you're spot on, Neil, with what you've just said. It's it's uh yeah, it, it's exactly what they are. So yeah, fascinating. It's
2: not as poetic, though. Brian. Not <laughs> uh, not not as
1: poetic at all, Neil. I'm, I'm trying to scrub this mental image I have at the moment from, like, from my brain.
0: But maybe it's one of those yes, one of those realities that maybe we need to kind of think more about. So yeah. yeah. Um. Now we did promise we were going to talk about platypus today, and. Uh, you know, this is obviously a marine show, but as you pointed out, Neil, everything is connected. Let's talk a little bit about platypus and rivers and um, and how they sort of make their way through the system. This is something that Kent was has been very keen to hear more about. Um, I think Kent's very fond of platypus. Who wouldn't be? So, yeah, tell us about platypus and particularly platypus in, in our own local rivers here around Melbourne. Okay,
3: so the platypus is quite quite widely spread across Melbourne but it's in a lot of trouble. It's recently been classified downwards as vulnerable and that's because we are taking so much water out of our waterways for um, irrigation farming and other uses and so they're suffering uh, a loss of water and that that in springtime is the very thing that triggers them into breeding cycles And as well as that, uh, just talking about the former stuff we were mentioning things like litter and so forth, there are also big hazards for uh, platypus. Little round yellow rings that fit around Vegemite jars, for example, when you snap the lid off. Or rubber bands or hair ties for long hair that pins the hair back behind the head. These things are very dangerous for platypus. The very platypus model we use out here in the Werribee and the western Melbourne as an educational model It's now taxidermied, of course, died because of a platypus around its neck and a resultant infection and a cut back into the flesh. And then that platypus, which had its left leg pinned to its body by the rubber band, was then set upon by either a dog or a fox or a cat. We're not sure which. Um, So the creature was killed because of litter really in the first place hampering its movement. So, what with climate change coming uh, into the future, even per- perhaps more so, and our urban populations growing larger and larger, and despite things like the state governments' recent good initiative, just yesterday I think they announced single-use plastics are going to be phased out in Victoria in 2023, uh, we still have a massive amount of litter. And anybody who wants to look at the Werribee River Association Facebook page for the last couple of days will see the stuff that's been poured, blown, dumped in our waterways right across Melbourne so uh, it's really a a very hazardous situation and outlook for the platypus but nonetheless there's some good things um, so we're doing some research this year, uh, actually netting again. We haven't been netting for platypus for a while. We have, we work with Caesar Australia and the Australian Platypus Con- uh, Conservancy and we're going to um, try and get a more accurate, up-to-date picture of how many platypus in Werribee and Bacchus Marsh this year on the Werribee River and, uh, and then look at trying to make an area or two as a reference for platypus
1: John, do you, do you have, what, what's an, an estimate of the, the number of platypuses that you have in the Werribee River now? I know you just said you were doing some netting to do a survey, but, but are they visible now?
3: Yeah, well, occasionally we get uh, odd views or photos from different people. I don't mean odd, of course. I mean the odd one every now and then. (laughs) Um, So if you look at the Werribee River in your mind's eye, you'll notice that in Werribee you have the Werribee Open Range Zoo to the south of the main town of Werribee. Uh, There's a population down there. It's small, but possibly a dozen or something like that. Very hard to estimate platypus numbers. Uh, but down there, south of the town of Werribee, we have some, in the in the centre of town of Werribee over, say, a seven, eight kilometres stretch of the Werribee River, probably less than that. And uh, my observations of that area, and I spend quite a bit of time on the river, are that there'd be less numbers than that. And in fact, at the end of 2018, we lost seven of them drowned in a, an illegal net just north of the township, so that would have made a huge hole in this population, in this area. Uh, Further north into places like Tarnit, so the top northern expanding suburbs of Wyndham, uh, there would be very few platypus that we know of. Our DNA results up that way are very sketchy, and then they don't come again in any terms of consistent numbers or evidence until we get back up to Backlap Marsh, where there's quite a number of current physical sightings and some good to reasonable eDNA results but we're going up there this year with the nets for the first time in many many years to have a good look at that population because we think in time to come that may be in fact the population which might be able to be used for repopulating some other areas of the river.
0: Fascinating John that they are so close to the bay. I had no idea that they were so close to the bay. So we're talking, you know, I think most people when they make that trip down the Geelong Road, down to Geelong would be, you'd see it. I mean, it's very obvious where the Werribee Zoo is. So we get platypus that far down.
3: Yeah, yeah. So the estuary of the Werribee River is about seven to ten kilometres long. So it's a bit of a windy river, particularly around the beautiful Carrow Cliffs, Area uh, just south of the Werribee Golf Club, uh, and uh, so the estuary is great for uh, brim fishing and a few other things. But the the the, the historic ford, as it's called at it, the Werribee Park Mansion, if you're ever there visiting and you walk down to the the uh, old ford, that's actually what they call the fishway there now, constructed by Melbourne Water to allow fish up and down the river, uh, is in fact the end of the estuary. So from that point up, all the way through the zoo.
0: Platypus do live. Wow, that's amazing. John, so,
2: if I could just butt in there, Bron, that uh, it's fair to say uh, that uh, they're surviving in the less urbanised catchments. Mm. So, in other words, those catchments that still have more permeable surfaces. Uh, the in- inner urban areas have just disappeared entirely, uh, and so it's clear that the actual prey that they forage on as could be a critical factor in their presence. You know, so. Uh, we know that um, the more per, uh, less permeable surface catchments have less uh, uh, bugs in the water so you know that, that's basis of survival for the flood which just simply isn't there yeah,
3: and, and, and bron and neil if i carry on with that one we are looking at doing a microfauna project this year looking at that very issue with regard to what storm water is doing to our waterway so the very things that send the very water that sends a per- problems downriver for Neil, uh, the very things which are also impacting on the platypus. So Neil's observation early on that the bay, uh, the skinny, sorry, the rivers and waterways are the skinny bits of the bay is right because they feed the bay with their rotten stuff that they might carry down and they, in fact, do hurt platypus. So we're doing some microfauna studies in a particular area. We hope to turn into a refuge for platypus because it just happens to have due to design and other natural features some, uh, an absence of stormwater so we're looking at that as a possible, beautiful haven for them in time to come.
0: Yeah, great. It all it is so important, and it is all connected. And uh, everything that you've just said is spot on, Dr.
1: Beach. I, I, I'm wondering with platypus. Maybe I'm naive here, but but my memory is that they need free flowing water. Is that true, or are they happy in sort of like in, in pools?
3: Uh, now they, they like, um, like all of us, a bit of variety. So they certainly do like uh, water rippling over rocks because it's in amongst the rocks that some creatures like to live. And so they will um, forage around there. Um, but like all of us, they also like a varied diet. So some invertebrates that they like to eat will live around those areas, but some live in pools and uh, in amongst, say, uh, sea, not seagrass, beg your pardon, um, um, reeds and grasses growing inside aquatic plants and they like
2: to forage around those as well yeah, it's probably worth noting that their distribution across australia is primarily on the eastern side but that uh, goes from uh, the just past the south australian border i suppose around the coast and up to, to um, northern queensland in the tropical rainforest and, and, and also in the snowy sort of uh mountaintops of Tassie, you know, so they've uh, certainly got a widespread uh, range of conditions that they can survive in.
3: And uh, just following up on that one, if you go down to the Otways, due to a landslip there some years ago, a, a new lake was formed. And the lake itself, I understand, I just can't think of its name, but I do apologize for that. But it's actually a lake, and uh, the, the platypus do like it. It has an inflowing stream, of course but they do like that lake there too. So deep pools aren't really a problem to them and they've adopted to a range of places as Neil was just explaining.
0: I reckon we could keep talking about platypus for the next 32 minutes and I reckon Kent would probably love to be hearing about it, but we probably need to move on. A couple of things I wanted to ask you very quickly about before we go. Neil, we did say you were gonna report on some recent work you've done with Darabin Creek sweepers. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Uh, Well, we we did a uh, Creeks uh, clean up in West Heidelberg um, last weekend, Bron, and uh, that was uh, probably my uh, first chance really to connect with the group for a number of months uh, because of the COVID situation. So uh, uh, what I've been talking to them about is the possibility of uh, doing some more detailed analysis, particularly of microplastics, which tend to get overlooked in clean up activities and it's hard to um, do it well in a creek situation, because uh, the you know the uh, just the actual physical process of being able to collect them is difficult if the banks are a bit steep, etc. But yeah, just so uh, I'm, I'm hoping that we can continue that conversation and to get uh, uh, river and creek clean-up people uh, across uh, the Melbourne area to uh, perhaps come up with a more unified way of collecting data.
0: Yeah, that sounds like something that we can definitely continue conversations with. Um, That's excellent. And uh, last thing, John, you've got a clean-up event happening today. Is it something that you'd like to to mention, give a bit of a plug to?
3: Yeah, sure. Uh, We're doing a series of events over Clean Up Australia Day time, Mm -hmm. and today we're down at what's called Tuneside Park, and uh, we're cleaning up along the river, across the parkland itself, in and around the sporting facilities which are there, and... Um, It's a lovely day so it's a great activity and I'm looking forward to heading down once we finish up chatting and uh, anybody else is welcome to come along as well and it's all about really larger litter items, we're not doing microplastics uh, in such a thriving young population where most people are under the age of 35 uh, with about 300,000 people, there's a lot of litter around as you might imagine.
0: So whereabouts is that, John, if people want to go and take play? at Tenside
3: park? park, yep. It's in uh, virtually at the western end of the main street of Werribee in the Werribee CBD, so Watton Street, southwest end.
0: And have you got a website where people can go for more information on uh, this?
3: Yes, if people want to look up uh, Werribee River on Facebook, they'll find us and they'll find all the details
0: on there. Yeah, good one. Thanks so much to both of you. It's been great speaking with you. And, um,
3: uh, lovely. Great,
0: great to meet you on air, John. and um, thank you. Yeah, look forward to catching up with you again. Good
3: to talk to you guys as well. Thank yeah. you very much. Great show. Good to be with
0: you. Oh, Likewise. And thank you, Neil. Always a thank pleasure. You. We'll catch up bye with you, you in bye. a few weeks' time.
2: Okay. Bye. Excellent. All bye right. for now. Bye. guys.
0: Now, with tomorrow being the 1st of March and the start of autumn, the clock is ticking loudly for the first appearance of spider crabs for the 2021 migration and molt. And since the crabs departed in mid-2020, the campaign to protect the spider crabs has continued out of the spotlight. While the crabs have been out of sight, they certainly haven't been out of mind for the people in the Save Our Spider Crabs campaign. So where are things at and what's being planned for the last couple of months before the crabs return? Let's find out. And welcome back to Triple R from Save Our Spider Crabs Jackie Younger and Mandy Nicholson. Good morning, Jackie and Mandy. Welcome back.
4: Good morning.
0: I think I've got your name wrong, haven't I? Sorry. No, I haven't. It's all good.
4: No, no, you're all good. You're all good. Can you hear me, Brian?
0: We can. Can we hear you, Mandy? Oh, have we got Mandy on the line? We seem to, but we don't seem to have any audio. So, listen, we'll we'll start with you, Jackie. Just while sure. uh, while Kent works this out. Now, before our listeners go, uh, hang on a minute. Don't we know those voices <laughs> and names from various clean up events and from dolphin research? It is. We are we talking about the same Jackie and Mandy who've been on Radio Marinara many times? <laughs>
4: i've been on the radio marinara many times but i think actually mandy has not been on before she actually does work with me at dolphin research so it's all it's a very small world bron
0: yes
4: (laughs) but it's definitely her first time on radio marinara as far as i know
0: and uh and we did um uh yes we we have spoken with you both many times um blegarry sea sponge transplants i think Farm described you yeah Farm described you last week as being the hardest working woman in marine conservation certainly i
4: heard that and i actually she cut me off and i said take this one to no
0: one fam <laughs> <laughs> yes that's right you two are both in very fine company um <laughs> now on this occasion you're here as representative of save our spider crabs and sure. i think let's go back to the basics because you know you never know who maybe is tuning into this program for the first time why is this issue such an important one for you
4: Oh, there's so many reasons, Bron. Um, look, this is a spectacle that the whole community can come down and witness. Um, it's 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 an aggregation of the spider crabs every winter that happens in the shallows along our shorelines. Um, primarily, we've been seeing them at Blegarry and Rye Pier. So they do appear in other places, um, but it's something that the whole community could see. They come in, the spider crabs come in to, to shed their shells. They come in for protection in numbers um it's just a, it's just a brilliant spectacle to witness you can see all the stingrays coming in and having a feed on them a lot of animals come in and feed at that time of year so it's just a really brilliant spectacle that you don't have to be a diver or have a boat to witness everyone can see this it's um it's amazing
0: um we're trying to get mandy on i think we do have mandy on are you with us mandy Hello, can you hear me, Bron? Yes, we can. (laughs) We got you now. That's great. We just, I don't know if you've heard much of what we've just been speaking about, but just really, uh, I guess, setting the scene for what it is that that you have been doing with your team, your campaign team, because of course, it's not just the two of you, there there are lots of you involved. That's right. Um, All right. So yeah as I mentioned the spider crabs are expected to show up somewhere along the Mornington Peninsula sometime in the next couple of months and they do appear on the Bellarine as well don't they it's not just on the uh, on the the eastern side of the bay
4: they yeah they appear all they appear, they appear in different different places all over the bay and in Victoria however obviously the the issue is contentious on the Mornington Peninsula because we have the the places that they show up are the most accessible sites for people to come and see them. So there's there would be many areas that they show up that we don't know of, but they are all over the place. That is true.
0: Do we know where they've been since they left in the middle of last year?
4: No. Well, um, that's a question to, that I'll, I'll um, reach out for. I was going to talk about that a bit later, but um, there's no... Look, there's no... We don't know where they go. There's no research on this species at all there is no it comes down to the family of crab but there's been no um, research on this species so we're not really even sure that they go outside the bay at this point so we really don't know where they go it's a mystery to 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 many scientists and it's something that we're hoping to uncover over the next couple of years for sure
0: now, we've got a few things to cover since we caught sure. up with you late last year. Uh, one of these is a proposal by Victorian Fisheries Authority to reduce the daily bag catch limit from 30 to 15. Um, that would actually halve it. What's been the response mm-hmm. of your group to that proposal?
4: I'll take that one, Mandy. Um, look, to put it briefly, I have to keep it, make it clear, and I've said this many times, we are not anti-fishing. We are not opposed to the people who are legally coming down to net those crabs. Our... Our issue is with the government regulations. Uh, what We have supported a reduced bag limit all the way through, a bag limit that made sense. It was always a step towards a no-take. It was never going to be the end of our campaign. Um, uh, the Victorian Fisheries Officers uh, did a survey through WeChat and we went through the results of the survey with them and their reduction of 30 to 15... Oh, look, it sounds really great. Everyone's listening saying that's fantastic, but... A significant number of the netters that answered this survey caught 15 or less. So this reduction, in our strong, at our strong opinion, will not make any difference. It will not reduce the impacts. It will not reduce the crowding on the pier. It will not reduce the litter. So, it, it, it it's a it's a reduced limit that is not uh, is not going to change anything, as we see it.
0: It's an interesting one, because I guess you know what is the issue here? Is it the actual number of crabs that people can take, or is it you know more to do with the behaviours of the people who are going to come and take the crabs in the first place? but then But then, as you pointed out, Jackie, that you know this is a stepping stone to to getting to some kind of resolution of all these issues and these complex issues as well. So I guess being a devil's advocate here, is this a step in the right direction, even if it's not necessarily the end point?
4: look it's a really hard one it's really difficult one to answer It, it of course it's a step towards a no take um our um campaign has never been about the sustainability of these crabs um you'll find many people that say there are thousands to millions of them remember as i said no no uh, valid research has been done on their species it's about it's about the behavior of the netters who may not be educated properly it's about um, what's left at the pier it's about um, the fact that these crabs come into molt and they're very very vulnerable at this time so it's 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 a whole complexity of issues surrounding it if, if there had been a bag limit that had been reduced to make sense to really reduce that catch to reduce the incentive to travel down from Melbourne and catch these animals um we would have supported it on more so it's a really difficult one to answer bron um i can't it's a step but it's not the end
0: yeah definitely um the other thing i was going to ask about i had a quick sort of search online search with this yesterday and the vfa and the verfish webpage still have 30 crabs per person per day is that (laughs) so is it something that's actually been passed or is it just a proposal at this stage
4: no, as, as 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 far as we're aware, it's been passed, so it must be um, something that hasn't been updated yet. Maybe that is because the crabs aren't here yet. I'm not sure about that, but that's definitely something I'll look into because I wasn't actually aware of that. Yeah,
0: I might have been looking the wrong place too, but it's, no, it, it, I looked at it and I thought this is this is looking very confusing. But anyway, we can we can get <laughs> to that one. <laughs> um, now, last time we caught up with you, some of your group were getting involved in some citizen science research um, by the Victorian Fisheries Authority. How did that go?
4: Sure. Um, uh, Mandy, you want to take that one? I was going to get Mandy to talk about some of the meetings, but um, I'll I'll, I'll answer that one. Um, I've dealt with a few people on that one. Look, the research, I can't say too much at this stage. What I can tell you is we have had a lot of interest in research on these animals, um, particularly with all the attention that they've garnered over the last year. So, We have uh, been in discussions with several not-for-profits about doing a citizen science component, so that's looking very strong. And we are also in discussions with uh, several universities that are very keen to do some traditional science on these animals. So we are looking at migration, yes, but very interesting point with these animals is to know how important the mating and the molting are, how close they are together. some, some crabs need to, molt, need to molt to mate, to have a softer shell. Some crabs can do both. We don't know what these crabs do. So my interest would definitely be in that area, but we're, we're, we're garnering a lot of interest and hopefully over the next few months, um, we can release some information on that on that particular aspect of it. It's very exciting, though.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Like one of the things with marine research, it's th- one of the, the difficulties, I guess, is the unpredictability of so many situations out there in the wild. But this kind of immediately rules that out because you know that these crabs are going to turn up at approximately the same time every year. So mm-hmm. you know, it seems to be perfectly built for um, you know one year honors project or or uh, or something a little bit longer if if uh, yeah, was- if funding permits. So. Yeah, interesting one. Um, We've got a couple of minutes left. I just want to ask you about the interest, public interest and otherwise too in the campaign. Uh, So late last year when we caught up with you, Mornington Peninsula Shire Council were definitely showing interest in the campaign and obviously wanting to prevent some of those ugly scenes from last year from happening again. Have you had any more meetings with um, the council and with with other people uh, who might be able to sort of support you and have interest in what you're doing?
5: so i think that's my section jackie isn't it yeah <laughs> um so yeah we've actually had some very productive meetings over the last couple of weeks Um just a few days ago we met again with a couple of the councillors from mornington peninsula um shire and they are obviously very keen to see where we can go and and also look at the potential for celebrating this mm-hmm. event every year down the track um, and a couple of weeks ago, um, the leader of the opposition, Michael O'Brien and Ed O'Donoghue, reached out to our group to come down and learn a little bit more um, and had a, a great meeting with two others of our team, Zoe and AJ, down at Rype here and discussed the issues. Obviously, it is a, an issue of concern to them that there's... A significant community support for a no-take um, and I think it's really good to obviously engage as many sides of, of politics as possible in, in in what is obviously a very broad community concern.
0: Yeah and the scenes that we did see last year were they were quite distressing uh, to you know just as a as a bystander I guess and I wasn't even down there I can imagine how distressing it was for for you and for your team. Um, we'll have to wrap up in just a sec but we'll catch up with you again very soon in the next few weeks. Just wanted to finish by asking you about the petition that you had running because um, you had quite a few thousand who'd already signed it. Where Where is that at?
4: uh well that's just increasing by the moment um we're at 37,000 plus there's about three and a half thousand locals um we expect that as you know we've just been through COVID, bronze so mm. you know people are going to get out there now we formed the spider crab alliance to to um contain the rage and to give the community a voice so we're really going to see that you know we've got some exciting things like coloring competitions and planning for future roles coming up so um you know i expect that petition to grow um we've also got a website that we've almost finished developing so you're going to see a lot more of us over the next few months
0: <laughs> yeah and it, that clock is ticking as we mentioned at the mm-hmm. start of this chat that you know it's march tomorrow and uh the march of the spider crabs is gonna you, we know it's coming and yet yeah, let's see what happens in the next couple of months thanks so much to both of you and let's catch up again in uh, sure. in, in a few weeks time and in the meantime if people want to go for some more information or to reach out to you make contact with you what's the best way they can do that
5: so probably the best way is to contact us through our facebook on spider crab alliance um, or as jackie said when the website's live save our spider crabs.com.au i think yep um that would be the the best way and we're already getting people messaging us through the facebook which is great and, and seeing how they can help us in the future
0: yeah fantastic and mandy i need to correct your surname you're mandy robertson correct <laughs> i am yes <laughs> i called you mandy nicholson so apologies for that that's all good <laughs> excellent jackie younger mandy robertson great to speak with you both and we'll catch up with you in a few weeks time
4: oh uh, thanks so much for the opportunity guys we'll speak soon yeah Always. Thanks, Bron. Thanks, team.
0: Everyone, bye. Bye. Our, our pleasure. You. Bye for now. Always a pleasure. Uh, Jackie and Mandy there from Save Our Spider Crabs.
1: Two wonderful human beings doing a wonderful job.
0: Incredible. Time for Doctor Beach and Life's a Beach.
1: Indeed, it is. I've got a good news story today. I'm, I'm kind of tired of opening the journals, Bron. And there's a bit of you know bad news about the reef dying, climate change, all sorts of things. And indeed. I, on this program two weeks ago, was talking about the marine soundscape and how it's getting kind of worse with all the shipping and the air guns that we use to look for all sorts of things below the surface of the ocean. And we're just chucking all this noise in there. And that interferes with the behaviour of the many animals who vocalise in the ocean. Not only the whales that we know about, but also we understand more about fish and invertebrates need that as well. But let's get back to whales so fin whales. Fin whales are about the second biggest, largest whale out there next to the blue whale. Like the blue whale, they have very strong, low frequency, loud, very penetrative songs. So it's the males that sing and they have these beautiful songs, which you can actually listen to on Wikipedia. You can go on you can go on the net and listen to them.
0: Northern Hemisphere?
1: Uh, northern, no, no, global, right? very little known about them in the Southern Hemisphere. They were knocked off a lot by whalers. Um, population has come back significantly. We need to know a lot more in the Southern Hemisphere. In fact, there's probably a different subspecies here, but there's quite a bit known in the Northern Hemisphere. Very fast, sleek, finback is another name for them. In fact, they have been called the greyhounds of the sea hmm. back in the 1800s. And fin whale songs, when they were first heard by biologists, they couldn't actually figure out what it was. They thought it might have been some kind of seismic activity or even the Russians perhaps trying to detect submarines. We can detect fin whale songs, um, of course, with all sorts of recorders. And in fact, we have ocean-bottom seismometers, which are around the ocean bed, and they're there to detect vibrations in the hope of predicting earthquakes. Turns out you can actually hear fin whale songs through these ocean bottom seismometers Hmm. and there's a really clever group of people, um, well a pair of people um, working at University of Oregon in Corvallis, so top left of the US, uh, with somebody else in Czechoslovakia and they were in fact looking at earthquakes and the noises in these ocean bottom seismometers and realised, hey, hang on, we're getting all these fantastic fin whale vocalisations. What they were able to do was not only record those vocalisations but to be able to see where the fin whales were by doing all this fancy mathematics, vectors, computers, all of this stuff. And they realized that the, the vocalizations, because they're so penetrative, even though they are low frequency, that they could measure like the, the direct distance of the whale through the water. and they're usually about 20 meters below the surface when they make these vocalizations. But not only would the vocalizations go straight to the ocean bottom seismometer, but it would also they figured out that they would also bounce through the sea floor, down through and even to the to the crust to the oak to the upper layers of the crust, so down to almost two kilometres. Hmm. So then they would get this delayed recording coming back. So the direct recording through the water, and then the the refracted and the reflected recordings. And they thought we might be able to do something cool with this, and indeed they have. They've been able to take these recordings from three fin whales um, off the coast of Oregon. They've tracked them over a number of days, and the fin whale songs are the, like one second, and then they'll repeat again and go along for another like seven seconds and then they'll but they will these songs will keep going for many tens of hours for days so what they do so imagine you've got a whale which you're tracking its song and it's you know for a couple of days so it's going through many 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 kilometers and they're taking the songs from them recorded from the ocean bottom seismometers doing all this fancy mathematics using these powerful computers and from that they've been able to reassemble really accurate images of not only the sea floor, so what it looks like, the bathymetry, but also information about the crust below the sea floor. So actually, they actually go out and survey it with another way, and you know confirm your data that you are getting from the ocean bottom seismometers from the fin whales. So this is opening up the potential for using these fin whale songs to perhaps replace a lot of the noise that we as humans chuck into the ocean. For example, loud air guns to measure. Um, what's happening just below the surface? Mm. The fin whale songs not giving us the resolution that we get from these you know, other noisy invasive methods. But they, they people point out, these authors point out that if we were able to capture, say, sperm whale songs, uh, which have a little bit more, you can get a little bit more resolution from that that we have, might indeed be able to replace these um, these noisy air guns in the future. And I just think it's a beautiful story. Of, oh, yeah. it, so this is the first one. This is the first paper. It's big news. It's appeared in the journal Science um, a few days ago. I think it was February 11. For those of you who are looking for it, it's called Seismic Crustal Imaging Using Fin Whale Songs. And it's, um, yeah, a really beautiful thing. And just before we move on from, from Wales, there was another... Um, a letter to to science or nature, I forget, from scientists begging the community to do more work on beaked whales. Mm. Beaked whales, a little bit smaller, average around perhaps sort of 15 metres, 5 to 15 metres, many, many species out there we think, not so sure, need to do a lot more work, but the numbers are decreasing a lot because they get really lots of beaching events from blasting noise that we chuck into the ocean again. This is killing them. Mm. Um, but re- as, as, as kind of a backup to that, I hadn't realised this, I know it probably was in the media a while ago, but Sea Shepherd had an expedition off to the off, um, coast of California um, and discovered what they think is probably a new species of beaked whale. Mm. And I asked you to, to put that link up onto the Facebook site. but um, So people might, if it's not there now, have it a look later be. on. Yeah. Uh, but that should be pretty easy to find, Sea Shepherd um, beaked whale. And it's a really beautiful... Um, Little video of the the expedition and then finding this um, this potentially new species of um, of beaked whale. So cool. Yeah, lots of stuff happening in the whale world. I'm sure Dave Donnelly will be all over it, and um, when he gets back, in, it'd be nice to chat to him about it. But um, I, yeah, I, I was cheered by that that article about the fin whales and how we can you know not only appreciate the songs for the biology that it's you know doing for the fin whales. Of course, they communicated with one another, but also to use that to to replace some of our noise pollution.
0: Thanks, Dr Beach. Pleasure. Absolutely wonderful stuff. Yes, definitely we'll put that on our Facebook page and a couple of other links from today's show as well. We'll just pop them underneath the posting about today's show. Great to have you back.
1: It's so much fun. It's Yay. such a... I'm just beaming from ear to ear you and are. looking forward to coming back next week. Too.
0: I can verify that. Yes, you will be back next week. Rex Hunter is going to be with us as well. Uh, Paul Carnell from Blue Carbon. You've lined this one up.
1: Yep, yep. Looking forward to getting Paul in the studio or perhaps on the blower. Um, he's talking to us about Blue Carbon and what's been happening with his group at Deacon New.
0: Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.